Hey, Living Hope family, I miss being with you this morning. I'm actually at my niece Anna's wedding. Many of you may recall Anna leading worship a few times here, but I'm excited that you're going to hear the Word of God from Brooks Lamont. Brooks is married to Eliza recently, and they're both UGA grads. Brooks is the uh, campus director of Phi Slam Ministry, and Eliza works with crew at UGA. And Brooks is doing an internship with us this year. And I just uh, appreciate so much Brooks' heart for God, love for the Word, love for his bride, the church. And so turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 as Brooks comes to bring the message. Okay. Well, this time the, uh, the children can go to Children's Church. Are you okay? Yeah, the children's can go with, uh, with Miss Kathy over there. Or I can't really see with these lights, but there's someone over there who will take you to Children's Church. Um, they're, they're a trusted person, don't worry, you can send your kids with them. Um, so yeah, I'm Brooks, like Pastor David said, I'm an intern here, and when I, when I was going to come up here, I started to think about what I was going to say to kind of start this off, and so I thought about what Pastor David says, and I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this, uh, but most weeks, Pastor David comes up and he says, hey, I'm David Holt, and I'm one of the pastors here at Living Hope, and I think that simple phrase says so much about who he is as our pastor. He doesn't come up here and say, I'm the pastor here. Um, he is not domineering. This is not his stage. This is Jesus's church. Um, he's, pastor David is one of the, he's a member of this team, just like all of us are. Um, and I believe that that simple phrase that he uses to introduce himself each week sums up why I'm standing here. Uh, pastor David believes in each one of us. I mean, he knows that each of us are called in a special way, and he's committed to training all of us up as leaders uh, in our lives and the places that we live in. Um, so I've been given the great privilege of preaching this morning, and if I'm being honest, I hope it goes well. Uh, there's no telling how this is going to go. Um, so yeah, I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump into it. Father, we just come before you with just grateful hearts. Uh, we thank you that you are our Father. With that intimate word um, we can use to identify our relationship with you. We are your children, Lord. Um, we thank you for the great gifts that you give us. Um, would we just so generously give them back to you and give them away to others, Lord, as we seek to give our lives as sacrifices for one another? Um, would you anoint me as I try to bring this word? Would you anoint your word? Uh, would your word speak to us? Would you open up um, our ears? Would you open up our eyes to see what you have for us? In Jesus' name, amen. So as we start, I would love for everyone in here to close your eyes and to reflect on an experience of immense joy and cheerfulness. Some experience from the last year, let's say. And I'll give you a little bit of time to think about that, but think of a time of immense joy and cheerfulness. Maybe it was something with friends or family. Maybe it was here. There's no limits to this. So, everybody can open their eyes. Now, raise your hand if that experience was a moment of, of joyful financial generosity. Okay, is that, is that a hand? Okay, we got one hand, two hands. Hey, that was three hands. Okay, that's about what I expected. Um, maybe that's what you guys expected. Probably not many people would say that um, their most joyful moment in the last year was a moment of financial generosity. Um, it's not something that we think about very often, um, but we are going to be talking about this morning, um, the idea of being a joyful and a cheerful giver. 
Um, and so I want to give us a quick roadmap of where we're going this morning. Uh, first, I'm going to catch you up on the context of this passage. I think context is very important. Uh, then we're going to read the passage, and I'm going to attempt, at the best of my ability, uh, to break this passage down verse by verse for you guys. And then we're going to actually talk about what prevents us from living as though the message of this passage were true. And then we're going to finish uh, by envisioning a life that we can begin to walk in um, as though this were true um, and how we can practically uh, obey Jesus and uh, his commands to live generous lives. So for context, um, we're in the book of Second, or this, this uh, sermon's going to be in the book of 2 Corinthians. Um, and just so that we, you can know where we are, uh, Paul, he's the author, and he planted a church in Corinth. Um, and in 1 Corinthians, he's writing a letter to them as a letter of correction to let them know the ways that they have not been doing well. Um, and after they get that letter, um, some obey and some disobey, and some rebel against Paul and his teaching for them. Um, and at this time, uh, he then goes to write another letter to them, another letter of correction and kind of getting them back on course. Um, and at this time in history, uh, the, Jew, or the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, they're experiencing poverty because of the famine. Um, they're experiencing great lack. Um, and so Paul's raising money in his churches that he's planted uh, to help relieve those Christians in Jerusalem. And just before our passage, uh, there's a couple of verses. Paul, he's reminding the Corinthians of the upcoming collection that he's doing. And he's going to be coming to, to collect these funds for these Christians in Jerusalem. And he encourages them to go on ahead to plan and to arrange in advance their gift for those Christians and to remember to give in a willing way. And so this brings us to our text today. So would you guys please stand with me just in honor of God's word? Um, and I'll be reading 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 15. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must decide as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely, he is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. You can be seated. So I'm going to try to break down this passage verse by verse. Um, and also, I'm probably going to be drinking a lot of water. I've got like this consistent problem where my throat always gets really dry when I speak. So, so we're going to start in verse 6. Uh, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So oftentimes in the church, we talk about this whole idea of sowing and reaping. But most of the time we talk about it, it's in the context of what you sow. We talk about how we need to sow good things and not bad things. We need to sow to the spirit and not to the flesh. We need to sow love and not anger or discord. We talk a lot about how to sow in our lives. But in this passage, um, we see that Paul is talking about how to sow. 
Um, it seems as though the Corinthians have an idea of sowing and reaping, that what you put in has an effect on what you get out. Um, so the main point here is not what you should sow, but how you should sow it. Um, so this is our first point, that how you sow matters just as much as what you sow. We can sow good things, and we can sow bad things. We can also sow good things in an improper way. Um, and when we do it in the wrong way, we will reap poorly. We are to sow well, and in turn, we will reap well. Going on in verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Paul wants the reader to, to pray, to seek God, to, and to determine what way that God is calling them individually to give generously. Um, but remember the context of this passage. Uh, this passage uh, is a special offering. Um, these, uh, these Christians in Jerusalem, they're struggling, and they're in poverty, and there's a famine. Uh, this passage is not addressing tithing. So the phrase, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, uh, does not mean decide how much you're going to tithe. Don't read this and say to yourself, okay, I'll tithe 5%. Tithing begins at 10%, and it goes from there. And Pastor David will actually address this next week uh, in his sermon. I believe it's going to be all about tithing, the ins and outs of all of that. Um, here, Paul is urging the reader to think about this plan Put some thought into it and some effort into this whole thing called generosity um, because this is crucially important as a follower of Jesus. Decide in your heart how generous you're being called to be and then walk in obedience there. Verse 7 goes on to say, not reluctantly or under compulsion. And these two words, reluctantly and under compulsion, they're actually from the same Greek word. Um, and that word means out of sorrow, grief, or pain. God does not want us to be generous out of a place of sorrow and pain. Uh, Deuteronomy 15.10 says, You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and all that you undertake. But why are we to, to not give reluctantly or under compulsion? We see in verse 7 the answer, For God loves a cheerful giver. Uh, in Exodus 25.2, God is speaking to Moses, and he says, Speak to the people of Israel, that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. God wants our hearts to move when we partake in generosity. John Piper, he once said that the Christian way of doing things is never just do it. He says that just do it is not biblical motivation. The Christian way of doing things is not just about doing it, but it's about heart participation and heart change. Uh, John Piper then went on to say that all New Testament commands to act a certain way and to do certain things at the root, they're also a call to find joy in that doing. And this is our second point, that God calls to be, God call, God's call to be generous is equally a call to be joyful in it. God's will is for our obedience, um, but his will is also for our joy, and those two cannot be separated. We cannot divorce giving and generosity and living an abundant life from our heart. Those things have to be together. Um, so if you actually look closely at this passage, you might notice that there is only one command. Um, and the command is this. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. That's it. If you leave, if you leave here with one thing from today, it's this. Uh, seek God, ask him how he's calling you to give, and then walk in it. And make a decision in your heart to obey him. And that's it. Um, but God doesn't stop with this command. Remember that God is not a tyrant in the sky. 
He's not a drill sergeant giving you orders that you just must obey, that you must uh, bend over backwards to do. He's a loving father who loves his children into obedience. Remember, his kindness leads us to repentance. And this passage is no different. After Paul urges the Corinthians to give as they've decided in their hearts, he then begins walking them through all that God in Christ has done to pave the way for their faithful obedience. He gives a command, and he follows it up with every motivation they would need to walk in it obediently and faithfully. And we see one of those first reasons in verse 8. It says that God is able to make all grace abound to you. We have abundance. We have more than enough. Uh, we kicked off this series uh, on generosity with a, a sermon on God being an all-generous being. And once we get that straight, that God is a, a generous host to all of us, I think that the rest of this all makes sense. Um, and this leads us to our third point, is that God's grace and generosity towards us gives us all the abundance that we need, all that we will ever need. We live in the excess of the Father's love and generosity for us. All that we experience in life is a gracious gift from God. And this is further argued as we continue reading in verse 8. It says that, So having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Because of God's abounding grace towards us in his fatherly generosity, in Christ's self-giving sacrifice, and the gift of the Holy Spirit himself, we have every need met. And this word sufficiency in verse 8 is actually tied to the word contentment. Uh, and when we see Paul here talking about contentment, it's actually the same word that we see Paul using uh, in Philippians 4, verse 19. In, in verse 19, it says, it's, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Contentment is a gift, and it is something that is also learned. It's a state of being that we live in and an action that we have to take on a daily basis. But why does God gift us with this ability to be content? Does he abound towards us so that we can experience that abundance? Yes, but that's not the full reason. He's abundantly generous to us in Christ so that we can experience abundance in our lives and so that we can take that abundance into the world in the form of good works. Verse 8 goes on to say, you may abound in every good work. And this is where our fourth point comes from, that God abounds in grace so that we can abound in good works. Um, his abounding grace allows us to be abundant in all things at all times. And out of this abundance, we're able to be abundant in our giving and our generosity. Um, God will not call us into an experience of generosity in which he will not supply. Um, it may feel like you're hanging on a ledge, but he won't leave you hanging there. And it may feel as though he won't supply, but he will come through. And I would argue that God has not and will never call his people into something that he cannot bring them through. We see God's gift of abundance for us leading to good works and the interactions between Elijah and a widow in the book of 1 Kings. Um, so I'll give, just kind of give a rundown of the story. Uh, God tells Elijah to go to a city, um, and once he gets there, there's going to be a widow who will feed him. And so he goes to this place, he's obedient to God, and when he gets there, he meets her and he asks her to, to make some food for him. And she quickly replies, letting him know about the scarcity that she's facing, her and her son. They barely have enough flour and oil they don't have the basic, they, they have barely enough basic ingredients to, to make what they need. They're on the edge of starvation. And Elijah understands, but he urges her to go and make something for him to eat. And after she's done so, to then go and make something for her and her son. Um, and we see in verse 14 of this chapter, uh, it says, for, Elijah goes on to say, For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, 
and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. In her perceived scarcity, God supplied the widow's need and allowed for her to abound in good works towards Elijah. Her good works were met by the promised provision of God. And after this verse, then Paul goes on to cite Psalm 112, 9. Um, it says this, He is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And Paul brings up this line from this Old Testament poem to, I think, to paint a picture of a generous person. Um, and I would even argue that he's pointing the reader to, um, to the cheerful giver that he's calling these Corinthians to be. Uh, this cheerful giver is generous. He distributes freely. He scattered his resources to different people. He's given to the poor. He's looking out for those who are of lower status than himself. And what happens from these actions? The effects last forever. The good that comes from his acts of generosity never fade away. They don't just become memories of generosity. Um, and this is where our fifth point comes from, is that our generous acts have an impact on eternity. The generous acts that we do have an impact on eternity and will remain forever. We can give cheerfully, knowing that there are eternal rewards laid up for us in heaven. And I'll circle back to this idea of being blessed in return because of our giving in a minute. But before we go there, um, we continue in verse 10, and we see yet another motivation and reason to give cheerfully. Verse 10 says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. We can give because he has enabled us to give. He will supply and multiply everything that we have um, so that we can step up to the task of being generous people. Verse 10 helps us to remember that all that we have is from God. But you might say, Brooks, I work for this money. It's my job. I earned it. Um, but I would respond saying, not only did he give you that money, but he gave you every part of yourself that helped you earn that money. Uh, he gave you the brain that helped you learn how to do your job, and he gave you the body that helped you actually do the job. Um, God promises to use the resources and the capacities of his people as instruments of his grace for the salvation and the provision of the needs for others. Um, and we've seen in this passage today that so much of generosity comes down to this abundant overflow of God's provision. And it also comes down to this idea of ownership. And so we had to think about this idea of ownership, like who owns it? Who owns our money? God owns our money. Who owns our car? Who owns our house? Who owns you? God owns you. Um, this is ownership, and we have to understand it in order to understand generosity and how to faithfully walk in obedience. Um, and going on, we make it to verse 11, and we come back to the idea of God blessing us in return for our generosity. Verse 11 says, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Um, this word enriched here means to make rich or to be made rich. Uh, he continues to drive the point that God has given you what you need. So go and do something with it. Um, we have abundance right before our eyes. But when we read this verse, it's hard to ignore the fact that it says, you will be made rich. Uh, it leads us to wonder if Paul is writing about some prosperity kind of, of theology here. Is Paul trying to say that God will make me rich? Um, and in a way, yes, God will make you rich, but not in the way that you might think. He makes you rich for a different purpose. 
He makes you rich so that you can abound in good works um, and you can, you can further enrich God and others with what he has given you. Um, the purpose of it is for further generosity. And when we read these verses, uh, we should think of the parable of the rich fool. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is teaching a lesson on, lesson on possessions, um, and he tells this story. There's this rich man, he has this great harvest, and he realizes that he doesn't have enough room to store everything that he's got from this, this past season. Um, and so he decides that he's going to tear down his barns, and he's going to build bigger barns, um, and then he says, so he can store his crops, and he says to himself, you have ample goods laid up for you for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Jesus then interprets the story saying, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And, that's, and this sends us back to our fourth point, which is that God abounds in grace so that we can abound in good works. Um, we are blessed to be a blessing. God does not enrich us to build bigger barns. He enriches us to be generous in every way. Um, this enriching is not for selfish gain, um, but further enrichment towards God and others. Um, God provides for his people abundantly so that we can then continue to help meet the needs of others and help advance the kingdom of God. Um, so as we dip into the last portion of uh, this passage, we actually see that generosity is not just about giving. Um, it's not just about supplying people's needs. It goes far beyond that. Um, verse 11 to 15. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Paul is telling the Corinthians that their generosity is going to do so much more than just supply for the needs of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. It's going to lead to worship. Their giving has a ripple effect on more than just those Christians. Uh, their generosity is going to lead to thanksgiving being given to God. Um, and it's like Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and worship uh, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And this leads us to our sixth point, which is that the end goal of, of generosity is worship. As are all things, right? All things lead to worship. That's the end goal um, in the kingdom. John Piper, he said that missions exist because worship doesn't. Uh, he's saying, why do we do missions? Because worship isn't happening in those places. Why do we send people and funds to the 1040 window? Because people there aren't worshiping God. And the same can be said for pretty much everything we do in the church. Why does counseling exist? Because worship doesn't. Teaching exists because worship doesn't. And generosity exists because worship doesn't. Your generosity towards others will lead to people worshiping God. Um, so over the last 15 or 20 minutes, um, I've attempted to lay out this passage, and we've read it. Um, I've attempted to explain certain words and ideas to help us better understand it. Um, and so far, um, we have six points, and we've learned um, that how you sow matters just as much as what you sow. God's call to be generous is equally a call to be joyful in it. 
God's grace and generosity toward us gives us all the abundance we need. God abounds in grace so that we can abound in good works, and our generous acts have an impact on eternity. The end goal of generosity is worship. Um, but why don't we do this? Why don't we cheerfully give? And some of us do. Um, some of you guys who raise your hands, those, uh, those people who had that immense experience of joy in giving, um, this is true for some of us, but for some of us it's not. So what keeps us from living these lives? So I want to take a moment and to talk about scarcity and uh, distrust in God's generosity, what it is and where it came from. Um, so far in 2022, I've been studying different biblical themes and tracing them through the movements of the Old Testament. Um, so far, I've studied God's spirit um, in the movement of creation. I've studied, this is interesting, the theme of trees in scripture and what the biblical authors, how they've used trees as a way of pointing to certain arguments. Um, right now, I'm studying the theme of blessing and curse in the story of Jacob and Isaac. Um, and it's been blowing my mind to see how biblical authors use keywords and hyperlinks to send the reader back to Genesis, uh, the sea where so many biblical themes are born. Um, and so we're going to go to Genesis. Um, so if you guys, would you flip to me, or flip with me to Genesis 3? And we're going to see where this theme of distrusting God and his generosity for us was born. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And this scene in the garden starts with the serpent trying to lead Adam and Eve to question God's generosity. Uh, he wants the, the humans to think that God is holding out on them, that he, he wants them to think that there isn't enough. The serpent then goes on to say in verse 4 and 5, um, you, will, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Again, the serpent is trying to convince them that God is holding something back from them. He's not this generous God that he claims to be. Um, and you know the story, verse 6. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. They coveted they desired, and they jumped on it, and they went for it. They decided to not trust God and instead to take advantage of God's generous gift and his generous abundance for them. What God had given them in the garden apparently wasn't enough for them, so they took for themselves. And in this story, we see the birthplace of distrust in Scripture. Um, they did not trust God's generosity, um, and this theme is rampant throughout all of Scripture. Um, and this was the day that the mindset of scarcity was born. So what's the remedy to this problem of scarcity? And I think that the answer can be found in verse 8 of our text from this morning. And it says that, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you abound in every good work. Randy Alcorn once said, God's grace is the lightning, and our giving is the thunder. Just like thunder follows lightning, giving follows grace. It is possible to give without a deep understanding of God's grace. Sorry, I'll say that again. It is possible to give without a deep understanding of God's grace. It is impossible to have a deep understanding of grace and not give. And I've read it explained this way. We don't have a generosity problem. We have an understanding of grace problem. The outflow of our generosity to others will always be met with the inflow of God's generosity towards us. 
Um, and that dynamic of outflow and inflow and outflow and inflow is a dynamic that creates more glory for God and it increases the joy within us. God gives to us so that we can give to others. And remember, I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about our lives too. 1 Thessalonians 2.8 says that, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. We were to share every part of ourselves with others, not just our money, our very lives. Sending money to hurting people is great, but it's not enough. Sending money to overseas missions is phenomenal, but it's not enough. We're okay with giving our money to homeless people, but are we willing to invite them into our home to live with us and be a part of our lives? We have to be generous with every part of our beings. Um, even to the point that Jesus said in John 15, greater love has no one than this than he lay down his life for his friends. We have to be willing to lay down our lives for others. But praise God knowing uh, that our generosity and our love for others has always and will always be initiated and sustained by God's grace abounding towards us in Christ. Um, because if it were up to you and me, um, I'm pretty sure that our generosity would never happen. And if we could somehow muster it up within us to be generous people, it wouldn't last long without his grace sustaining us. So Living Hope Church, we have everything. Um, but it's for, for the fact that we can give everything to others. We no longer face scarcity. We live in the abundance of Christ. God is generous, and in his world there is more than enough for everyone. He's the host, and we are his guests. And because we're in abundance, we should give cheerfully. And our generosity always has results. It helps others, it maximizes our joy, and it brings glory to God. So most pastors, as they kind of bring the sermon to an end, they say, as I bring us to a close, or some sort of kind of marker to let you know, like, hey, if you're asleep, wake up. I'm about to say something important. Maybe start thinking about where you're going to go get lunch, that kind of thing. Um, but in this next portion of, of closing, I actually have um, more to say that I think is really important for our, our spiritual formation. Um, and this, this won't be as quick of a close as you might like. So instead of a pastor, I'm going to be a pilot, and I'm going to say, we are beginning our descent. So this might take a second. Um, but as I do this, I want to, uh, to bring a model before you. Um, Dallas Willard, he was a Christian author and thinker, and he had this model that he called VIM, V-I-M. Um, and it's this model that he used to help people see change and to start working in a way where they could see change in their lives. And this model is made up of three components, vision, intention, and means. Um, first, you need a vision. You need a compelling vision of a different way to be human. Two, intention. You have to make a decision within your heart to begin to change. You must have an intention to grow. And three, means. You have to have a practical way of beginning to walk in this new reality that Jesus has laid out for you. And so as we land this plane, I want to lay out a vision for living. I want to encourage you to make a decision in your heart to change. And three, I want to give you some practical steps for going forward. So first, the vision. I believe that Jesus' life and his teachings are a vision for our new reality. He chose abundance when he lived, and he saw God as a generous God, and so should we. We need the eyes of Christ. Uh, his teaching proves that there is abundance to be had. And I think that Jesus, his vision um, that should be ours uh, is seen in Luke 12, 22 to 34. So we can actually turn there. 
I believe this is the way that Jesus sees the world. Verse 22. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are they than the birds? How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life, to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O you of little faith, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus sees God as a generous God who takes care of his creation. Jesus says, don't be anxious. God will take care of you. He says, don't worry about your life. He says, sell your possessions, give to the poor, seek the kingdom of God, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Um, Don't worry. Um, What if we saw the world as Jesus did? What if we saw God as a generous Father who abundantly gives all that we need? He's inviting us to live a different story than the one that the world teaches us. It's a story that's built on trust in God's goodness, His love, and His generosity for us. And when you believe there is enough, you begin to see new opportunities for generosity. And if you don't believe this is true, if you don't believe there's enough for you, you won't see these opportunities. And in Hebrews 13, uh, verse 16, it says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So much of generosity is connected to koinonia and this idea of fellowship, participation, sharing, and contribution. Um, in the Bible Project, they actually walk you through this really well, way better than I ever could. And so I'm going to read this quote. It's a little long, so just try to stay with me. Since humans are made in, the image of a, made in the image of a God who shares, how could we do anything but share? We were made to share. Our instincts to self-preserve are strong, but our image-bearing identity is stronger. We were created by a God who gave and continues to give abundantly. King Jesus shared like a servant because he knew and trusted what he had with the Father and the Spirit. He has called us into the same generosity and empowered us with a relationship with the Father and the Spirit. How will we respond to him today? But to really experience joy, we are invited to trust God as we devote ourselves to sharing our lives and our resources in a real community. When we do, we participate with heaven while on earth. When we give our time to the family of God, we all get a glimpse of eternity. Every time we emotionally spend ourselves for one another, we all can feel God's love and commitment for us. When our limited resources are generously shared, God's limitless resources can be experienced by all. We were created in the image of God, 
We were created in the image of a God who has always known the abundance of shared fellowship. His reflection can be seen on earth just as it is in heaven when we share all that we have. So that's the vision, a life where you trust in the goodness of God, recognizing the abundance that we have. This abundance then overflows out of the image of God within us. And this generosity coming from us leads to helping others. It leads to our joy. And most importantly, it leads to worship. So that's the vision. Now intention. And this, this is your part. This is about your heart and your heart participating in this. <clears throat> I can't do this part for you. Um, it's up to you to go from here. Uh, you have to decide and say for yourself, I want this. Um, and we see God calling for his people to make a decision in the, in the book uh, of Malachi. Chapter 3, verse 7 through 10 says, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? God responds, and your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. And notice how God says they should return. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. I will not open... If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God says, test me and see what I'll do. So if you aren't sold on Jesus' vision for a generous life in the kingdom of God, you should test him because he says to and see what he does. Means. Tim Mackey, he said that one of the most important ways that we can experience the abundance of God's new creation is by sharing with others because of our trust that God is the generous host. We have to start walking in generosity in order to see the fruit of it. I feel like generosity is a lot like fasting. No one wants to do it. Um, a lot of times when it's done, it isn't done with the right or heart posture. It's done begrudgingly. And lastly, sometimes the effects are not really seen until we start to really do it on a regular basis. So I want to help all of us step forward into what I believe God is calling each of us into as his family in terms of generosity. So here are just a couple simple practices to help us begin to start walking in generosity if we aren't already doing so. And I recognize that a lot of you here at Living Hope are already so generous. You guys are really a generous people, um, but this, I hope, would just be good help as we go forward. So first, I think that no matter where you are on this journey in generosity, I think that we should all take some time this week to pray and to ask God um, to reveal to us what is keeping us from seeing the abundance that he gives us. And what keeps us from seeing with Jesus' eyes um, this world? And what keeps us from seeing God as a generous host? Second is to start tithing. And remember that this passage I said earlier, it's not about tithing. It's about a special offering. Um, and Pastor, Dave, like I said, Pastor David is going to talk about tithing next week. But if you're not tithing, I encourage you to go ahead and to begin doing that as a regular way of practicing generosity into returning what God has given to you. And third, just very simple, I want you to ask the question, what is one step of generosity that you're inviting me to take in the year ahead? Um, go to the Lord and ask him that. What is one step I can take? Because I think so often, I know especially for me, I think about where I should be, and I don't think about where I am right now. And that can become very discouraging because we're always thinking about where could we be we're not where we should be. I'm not as mature as I should be. Um, I'm not at this stage I'm supposed to be at. 
And so I encourage you, look at where you are and ask God, what is one step you want me to take? Um, and with that, uh, oh, and also, uh, if you're an overachiever, uh, you can actually, in the devotional, the generosity devotional that we've been reading and for the last uh, couple weeks, there's actually in the first couple pages, there are some examples of different ways that you can walk in generosity, different uh, like fun practices that you can do with individuals, for, for children too, for groups and families and stuff like that. Um, and so with that, I believe that the, plan is on, the plane is on the ground and we are taxiing back to the gate. Um, and so the worship team can actually come up, uh, but before we enter into worship, uh, I just want to take us through just this practice of prayer. Um, and the prayer team, they'll actually all be up here too, I think, if we have prayer team members here, um, if you need prayer. Uh, but before we enter into worship, um, I want to run us through this, this practice of prayer that actually the Quakers used to do, um, and it's called Palms Down, Palms Up. And it's a prayer to help us be still and to center in on God. Um, when our palms are down, it's symbolic of letting go. Um, of any concerns that we may have in giving them to God. And after some time, we'll turn our palms up, and this serves as a sign that we are here and ready to receive from God. Um, so would all of you guys just stand with me um, before we enter into worship, and I'll pray. Um, so let's just put our hands out in front of us with our palms down. Um, Father, we let go of believing that you are not a generous God. We let go of holding on to what you have given us with closed fists. We let go of withholding our possessions from others. We let go of believing that you are holding out on us. And we let go of not trusting that you'll provide. And God, we receive, you can turn your palms up, we receive your abundant grace. We receive your abundant provision. God, we receive your fatherly generosity. We receive Christ's generous gift. We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we receive and commit to walking in Jesus' vision for generosity and life in the kingdom of God. Amen.